0: August, Dereleth, August,
1: Arkham House, and the Cthulhu Mythos. This is the first, hmm, the first of the month will be an audio recreation of the first edition of The Outsider and Others. Uh, the first glimpse of, uh, the public gets of H.P. Lovecraft's skill as a writer of horror, just like beer, so I'm not going to list what's in the episode, so I just hope you enjoy today's surprise. Brought to you by Bunnieslippers.com. Check out the brand new Dino Sound Slippers. Slippers make a roaring sound every couple of steps. Soft plush uppers, foam footbeds, grip slippers so that you don't fall on your ass when you're skulking around the house at 3 a.m. All right. And let's see, what else do we have? We also have, check out Dave's Corner of the Universe every last Tuesday of the month, part of our monthly Cthulhu Mythos and other weirdness episodes, or go to his blog at davescorneroftheuniverse.wordpress.com. And yeah, I have to say, check out Dave's Corner of the Universe, all kinds of fun stuff. If you like role-playing games, he just recently made stats for Ambrose Bierce, part of last month's Ambrose Bierce last month's Ambrose Spears month, so yeah, check that out, and also help support the show by buying a shirt, uh, pgttc and we've got the cool Sothagua Latina Cha Ratfink-inspired t-shirts that I just made the other day, and the super cool Join a Cult t-shirt that has kind of a hand-drawn Cthulhu with X's over its... uh, it's, it's, I think you'll dig it. I think you'll dig it. Anyway. So, also, check out the show's merch table at pgttcm.com. I think it's uh, just labeled Shop. Or by donating a few dollars to paypal.me slash pgttcm. Special thanks to all of our guests later this month. And check out whatever they've got going on. If you want to be on PGTTCM or Black Clock Audio due to your profession or hobbies in academics, arts, or literature pertaining to Gothic horror, cosmic horror, weird fiction, or anything that we cover on the show, go to PGTTCM.com contact and talk to me about stuff. Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast that reads you a story, either a chapter, a novel, or a whole short story. Join us in our exploration of old ghost stories, supernatural fiction, horror tales, folk tales, fantasy, gothic horror, weird fiction, and cosmic horror. And don't forget to join us for our monthly show about the Cthulhu Mythos. What are you talking about? This month it's all about the Cthulhu Mythos. And Arkham... Uh, House Publications and August Derleth, look for our podcast wherever you find your podcasts. We suggest Podbean or Apple Podcasts. And hey, if you're one of our regular listeners who's not a big Cthulhu Mythos fan, you probably know someone who talks about that Cthulhu guy all the time. And hey, tell them about this month. Or hey, if you've got friends who you want to know more about the Cthulhu Mythos, Pass this month on to them, and it's going to be a lot of really good, ep- uh, really good uh, examples of HP Lovecraft. So hey, um, we got that going on. Find us on the web at pgttcm.com and Black Audio, bleh, Black Clock Audio on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Black Clock Audio Tales on YouTube, and we're also People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. So just <laughs> Google Black Clock Audio Tales, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, one of those two, you'll find us. All right. Check out the website, uh, edited by Daniel Spitzer. Produced in Badger Strip Studios in lovely North Portland, Oregon, USA.
2: The Temple by H.P. Lovecraft. Manuscript found on the coast of Yucatan. On August 20, 1917, I, Karl Heinrich, Graf von altberg herrenstein Lieutenant Commander in the Imperial German Navy, and in charge of the submarine U-29, deposit this bottle and record in the Atlantic Ocean at a point to me unknown, but probably about north latitude 20 degrees, west longitude 35 degrees, where my ship lies disabled on the ocean floor. I do so because of my desire to set certain unusual facts before the public, a thing I shall not in all probability survive to accomplish in person, since the circumstances surrounding me are as menacing as they are extraordinary, and involve not only the hopeless crippling of the U-29, but the impairment of my iron German will in a manner most disastrous. On the afternoon of June the 18th, As reported by wireless to the U-61, bound for Kiel, we torpedoed the British freighter Victory, New York to Liverpool, in north latitude 45 degrees 16 minutes, west longitude 28 degrees 34 minutes, permitting the crew to leave in boats in order to obtain a good cinema view for the Admiralty records. The ship sank quite picturesquely, bow first, the stern rising high out of the water whilst the hull shot down perpendicularly to the bottom of the ocean, our camera missed nothing, and I regret that so fine a wheel of film should never reach Berlin. After that we sank the lifeboats with our guns and submerged. When we rose to the surface about sunset, a seaman's body was found on the deck, hands gripping the railing in curious fashion. The poor fellow was young, rather dark, and very handsome, probably an Italian or Greek, and undoubtedly of the Victory's crew. He had evidently sought refuge on the very ship which had been forced to destroy his own, one more victim of the unjust war of aggression which the English pig-dogs are waging upon the fatherland. Our men searched him for souvenirs, and found in his coat pocket a very old bit of ivory, carved to represent a youth's head crowned with laurel. My fellow officer, Lieutenant Kinzer, believed that the thing was of great age and artistic value, so took it from the men for himself. How it had ever come into the possession of a common sailor, neither he nor I could imagine. As the dead man was thrown overboard, there occurred two incidents which created much disturbance amongst the crew. The fellow's eyes had been closed, but in the dragging of his body to the rail they were jarred open, and many seemed to entertain a queer delusion that they gazed steadily and mockingly at Schmidt and Zimmer, who were bent over the corpse. The boatswain Muller, an elderly man who would have known better had he not been a superstitious Alsatian swine, became so excited by this impression that he watched the body in the water, and swore that after it sank a little it drew its limbs into a swimming position and sped away to the south under the waves. Kinza and I did not like these displays of peasant ignorance, and severely reprimanded the men, particularly Muller. The next day, a very troublesome situation was created by the indisposition of some of the crew. They were evidently suffering from the nervous strain of our long voyage, and had had bad dreams. Several seemed quite dazed and stupid, and after satisfying myself that they were not feigning their weakness, I excused them from their duties. The sea was rather rough, so we descended to a depth where the waves were less troublesome. Here we were comparatively calm, despite a somewhat puzzling southward current which we could not identify from our oceanographic charts. The moans of the sick men were decidedly annoying, but since they did not appear to demoralize the rest of the crew, we did not resort to extreme measures. It was our plan to remain where we were and intercept the liner Dacia, mentioned in Information from Agents in New York. In the early evening we rose to the surface and found the sea less heavy. The smoke of a battleship was on the northern horizon, but our distance and ability to submerge made us safe. What worried us more was the talk of boatswain Muller, which grew wilder as night came on. He was in a detestably childish state and babbled of some illusion of dead bodies drifting past the undersea portholes. "'bodies which looked at him intensely, "'and which he recognised in spite of bloating "'as having seen dying during some of our victorious German exploits. "'And he said that the young man we had found and tossed overboard was their leader. "'This was very gruesome and abnormal, "'so we confined Muller in irons and had him soundly whipped. "'The men were not pleased at his punishment, but discipline was necessary.' We also denied the request of a delegation headed by Seaman Zimmer that the curious carved ivory head be cast into the sea. On June 20th, Seaman Bowen and Schmidt, who had been ill the day before, became violently insane. I regretted that no physician was included in our complement of officers, since German lives are precious, but the constant ravings of the two concerning a terrible curse were most subversive of discipline, so drastic steps were taken. The crew accepted the event in a sullen fashion, but it seemed to quiet Muller, who thereafter gave us no trouble. In the evening we released him, and he went about his duties silently. In the week that followed we were all very nervous, watching for the Dacia. The tension was aggravated by the disappearance of Muller and Zimmer, who undoubtedly committed suicide as a result of the fears which had seemed to harass them, though they were not observed in the act of jumping overboard. I was rather glad to be rid of Muller, for even his silence had unfavourably affected the crew. Everyone seemed inclined to be silent now, as though holding a secret fear. Many were ill, but none made a disturbance. Lieutenant Kinsey chafed under the strain, and was annoyed by the merest trifle, such as the school of dolphins which gathered about the U-29 in increasing numbers, and the growing intensity of that southward current which was not on our chart it at length became apparent that we had missed the Dacia altogether. Such failures are not uncommon, and we were more pleased than disappointed, since our return to Wilhelmshaven was now in order. At noon, June 28th, we turned northeastward, and despite some rather comical entanglements with the unusual masses of dolphins, were soon under way. The explosion in the engine room at 2am was wholly a surprise. No defect in the machinery or carelessness in the men had been noticed, yet without warning the ship was racked from end to end with a colossal shock. Lieutenant Kinzer hurried to the engine room, finding the fuel tank and most of the mechanism shattered, and engineers Raber and Schneider instantly killed. Our situation had suddenly become grave indeed, for though the chemical air regenerators were intact, and though we could use the devices for raising and submerging the ship and opening the hatches, as long as compressed air and storage batteries might hold out, we were powerless to propel or guide the submarine. To seek rescue in the lifeboats would be to deliver ourselves into the hands of enemies unreasonably embittered against our great German nation, and our wireless had failed ever since the Viceroy affair to put us in touch with a fellow U-boat of the Imperial Navy. From the hour of the accident till July 2nd, we drifted constantly to the south, almost without plans and encountering no vessel. Dolphins still encircled the U-29, a somewhat remarkable circumstance considering the distance we had covered. On the morning of July 2nd, we sighted a warship flying American colours, and the men became very restless in their desire to surrender. Finally, Lieutenant Menzer had to shoot a seaman named Traber, who urged this un-German act with especial violence. This quieted the crew for the time, "'and we submerged unseen. "'The next afternoon a dense flock of seabirds appeared from the south, "'and the ocean began to heave ominously. "'Closing our hatches we awaited developments "'until we realised that we must either submerge "'or be swamped in the mounting waves. "'Our air pressure and electricity were diminishing, "'and we wished to avoid all unnecessary use "'of our slender mechanical resources, "'but in this case there was no choice. "'We did not descend far,' and when after several hours the sea was calmer, we decided to return to the surface. Here, however, a new trouble developed, for the ship failed to respond to our direction in spite of all that the mechanics could do. As the men grew more frightened at this undersea imprisonment, some of them began to mutter again about Lieutenant Kinsey's ivory image, but the sight of an automatic pistol calmed them. We kept the poor devils as busy as we could, tinkering at the machinery even when we knew it was useless. Kinza and I usually slept at different times, and it was during my sleep, about 5 a.m. July the 4th, that the general mutiny broke loose. The six remaining pigs of seamen, suspecting that we were lost, had suddenly burst into a mad fury at our refusal to surrender to the Yankee battleship two days before, and were in a delirium of cursing and destruction. They roared like the animals they were and broke instruments and furniture indiscriminately, screaming about such nonsense as the curse of the ivory image and the dark dead youth who looked at them and swam away. Lieutenant Kinzer seemed paralysed and inefficient, as one might expect of a soft, womanish Rhinelander. I shot all six men, for it was necessary, and made sure that none remained alive. We expelled the bodies through the double hatches and were alone in the U-29. Keenze seemed very nervous and drank heavily. It was decided that we remain alive as long as possible, using the large stock of provisions and chemical supply of oxygen, none of which had suffered from the crazy antics of those swinehound seamen. Our compasses, depth gauges, and other delicate instruments were ruined, so that henceforth our only reckoning would be guesswork, based on our watches, the calendar, and our apparent drift as judged by any objects we might spy through the portholes or from the conning tower. Fortunately, we had storage batteries still capable of long use, both for interior lighting and for the searchlight. We often cast a beam around the ship, but saw only dolphins, swimming parallel to our own drifting course. I was scientifically interested in those dolphins, For though the ordinary Delphinus delphis is a cetacean mammal, unable to subsist without air, I watched one of the swimmers closely for two hours, and did not see him alter his submerged condition. With the passage of time, Kinza and I decided that we were still drifting south, meanwhile sinking deeper and deeper. We noted the marine fauna and flora, and read much on the subject in the books I had carried with me for spare moments. I could not help observing, however, the inferior scientific knowledge of my companion. His mind was not Prussian, but given to imaginings and speculations which have no value. The fact of our coming death affected him curiously, and he would frequently pray in remorse over the men, women, and children we had sent to the bottom, forgetting that all things are noble which serve the German state. After a time he became noticeably unbalanced, "'gazing for hours at his ivory image "'and weaving fanciful stories "'of the lost and forgotten things under the sea. "'Sometimes as a psychological experiment "'I would lead him on in the wanderings "'and listen to his endless poetical quotations "'and tales of sunken ships. "'I was very sorry for him, "'for I disliked to see a German suffer, "'but he was not a good man to die with. "'For myself I was proud.' knowing how the fatherland would revere my memory and how my sons would be taught to be men like me. On August 9th, we espied the ocean floor and sent a powerful beam from the searchlight over it. It was a vast, undulating plain, mostly covered with seaweed and strewn with the shells of small mollusks. Here and there were slimy objects of puzzling contour, draped with weeds and encrusted with barnacles, which Kinza declared must be ancient ships lying in their graves. He was puzzled by one thing, a peak of solid matter protruding above the ocean bed nearly four feet at its apex, about two feet thick, with flat sides and smooth upper surfaces which met at a very obtuse angle. I called the peak a bit of outcropping rock, but Kinza thought he saw carvings on it. After a while he began to shudder and turned away from the scene, as if frightened, yet could give no explanation save that he was overcome with the vastness, darkness, remoteness, antiquity and mystery of the oceanic abysses. His mind was tired, but I am always a German and was quick to notice two things, that the U-29 was standing with the deep sea pressure splendidly, and that the peculiar dolphins were still about us, even at a depth where the existence of high organisms is considered impossible by most naturalists. That I had previously overestimated our depth, I was sure, but nonetheless we must still have been deep enough to make these phenomena remarkable. Our southward speed, as gauged by the ocean floor, was about as I had estimated from the organisms passed at higher levels. It was at 3.15pm, August 12th, "'that poor Kinza went wholly mad. "'He had been in the conning tower using the searchlight "'when I saw him bound into the library compartment "'where I sat reading, and his face at once betrayed him. "'I will repeat here what he said, "'underlining the words he emphasised. "'He is calling. He is calling. I hear him. We must go.' "'As he spoke, he took his ivory image from the table,' "'pocketed it, and seized my arm "'in an effort to drag me up the companionway to the deck. "'In a moment I understood that he meant to open the hatch "'and plunge with me into the water outside, "'a vagary of suicidal and homicidal mania "'for which I was scarcely prepared. "'As I hung back and attempted to soothe him, "'he grew more violent, saying, "'Come, now, do not wait until later. "'It is better to repent and be forgiven "'than to defy and be condemned.' Then I tried the opposite of the soothing plan, and told him he was mad, pitifully demented. But he was unmoved and cried. If I am mad, it is mercy. May the gods pity the man who in his callousness can remain sane to the hideous end. Come and be mad whilst he still calls with mercy. This outburst seemed to relieve a pressure in his brain, for as he finished he grew much milder asking me to let him depart alone if I would not accompany him. My course at once became clear. He was a German, but only a Rhinelander and a commoner, and he was now a potentially dangerous madman. By complying with his suicidal request, I could immediately free myself from one who was no longer a companion, but a menace. I asked him to give me the ivory image before he went, but this request brought from him such uncanny laughter that I did not repeat it then i asked him if he wished to leave any keepsake or lock of hair for his family in germany in case i should be rescued but again he gave me that strange laugh so as he climbed the ladder i went to the levers and allowing proper time intervals operated the machinery which sent him to his death after i saw that he was no longer in the boat i threw the searchlight around the water in an effort to obtain a last glimpse of him since I wished to ascertain whether the water pressure would flatten him, as it theoretically should, or whether the body would be unaffected like those extraordinary dolphins. I did not, however, succeed in finding my late companion, for the dolphins were massed thickly and obscuringly about the conning tower. That evening I regretted that I had not taken the ivory image surreptitiously from poor Keenzer's pocket as he left, for the memory of it fascinated me. I could not forget the youthful, beautiful head, with its leafy crown, though I am not by nature an artist. I was also sorry that I had no one with whom to converse. Kinza, though not my mental equal, was much better than no one. I did not sleep well that night, and wondered exactly when the end would come. Surely I had little enough chance of rescue.' The next day I ascended to the conning tower and commenced the customary searchlight explorations. Northward the view was much the same as it had been all the four days since we had sighted the bottom, but I perceived that the drifting of the U-29 was less rapid. As I swung the beam around to the south, I noticed that the ocean floor ahead fell away in a marked declivity, and bore curiously regular blocks of stone in certain places, disposed as if in accordance with definite patterns. The boat did not at once descend to match the greater ocean depth, so I was soon forced to adjust the searchlight to cast a sharply downward beam. Owing to the abruptness of the charge, a wire was disconnected, which necessitated a delay of many minutes for repairs, but at length the light streamed on again, flooding the marine valley below me. I am not given to emotion of any kind, but my amazement was very great when I saw what lay revealed in that electrical glow. And yet, as one reared in the best culture of Prussia, I should not have been amazed, for geology and tradition alike tell us of great transpositions in the oceanic and continental areas. What I saw was an extended and elaborate array of ruined edifices, all of magnificent though unclassified architecture, and in various stages of preservation. Most appeared to be of marble, gleaming whitely in the rays of the searchlight, and the general plan was of a large city at the bottom of a narrow valley, with numerous isolated temples and villas on the steep slopes above. Roofs were fallen and columns were broken, but there still remained an air of immemorially ancient splendour which nothing could efface. Confronted at last with the Atlantis, I had formerly deemed largely a myth, I was the most eager of explorers. At the bottom of that valley a river once had flowed, for as I examined the scene more closely I beheld the remains of stone and marble bridges and sea walls, and terraces and embankments, once verdant and beautiful. In my enthusiasm I became nearly as idiotic and sentimental as poor Kinza, and was very tardy in noticing that the southward current had ceased at last, allowing the U-29 to settle slowly down upon the sunken city, as an airplane settles upon a town of the upper earth. I was slow, too, in realizing that the school of unusual dolphins had vanished. In about two hours, the boat rested in a paved plaza close to the rocky wall of the valley. On one side, I could view the entire city as it sloped from the plaza down to the old river bank. On the other side, in startling proximity, I was confronted by the richly ornate and perfectly preserved facade of a great building, evidently a temple, hollowed from the solid rock. Of the original workmanship of this titanic thing, I can only make conjectures. The façade, of immense magnitude, apparently covers a continuous hollow recess, for its windows are many and widely distributed. In the centre yawns a great open door, reached by an impressive flight of steps, and surrounded by exquisite carvings like the figures of Bacchanals in relief. Foremost of all are the great columns and trees both decorated with sculptures of inexpressible beauty, obviously portraying idealized pastoral scenes and processions of priests and priestesses bearing strange ceremonial devices in adoration of a radiant god. The art is of the most phenomenal perfection, largely Hellenic in idea, yet strangely individual. It imparts an impression of terrible antiquity, as though it were the remotest rather than the immediate ancestor of Greek art. Nor can I doubt that every detail of this massive product was fashioned from the virgin hillside rock of our planet. It is palpably a part of the valley wall, though how the vast interior was ever excavated I cannot imagine. Perhaps a cavern, or series of caverns, furnished the nucleus. Neither age nor submersion has corroded the pristine grandeur of this awful fane, for fane indeed it must be, and today, after thousands of years, it rests... "'untarnished and inviolate in the endless night and silence of an ocean chasm. "'I cannot reckon the number of hours I spent in gazing at the sunken city "'with its buildings, arches, statues and bridges, "'and the colossal temple with its beauty and mystery. "'Though I knew that death was near, my curiosity was consuming, "'and I threw the searchlight beam about in eager quest.' The shaft of light permitted me to learn many details, but refused to show anything within the gaping door of the rock-hewn temple, and after a time I turned off the current, conscious of the need of conserving power. The rays were now perceptibly dimmer than they had been during the weeks of drifting, and as if sharpened by the coming deprivation of light, my desire to explore the watery secrets grew. I, a German should be the first to tread those eon-forgotten ways. I produced and examined a deep-sea diving suit of jointed metal and experimented with the portable light and air regenerator. Though I should have trouble in managing the double hatches alone, I believed I could overcome all obstacles with my scientific skill and actually walk about the dead city in person. On August 16th I effected an exit from the U-29 and laboriously made my way through the ruined and mud-choked streets to the ancient river. I found no skeletons or other human remains but gleaned a wealth of archaeological lore from sculptures and coins. Of this I cannot now speak save to utter my awe at a culture in the full noon of glory when cave-dwellers roamed Europe and the Nile flowed unwatched to the sea. Others... Guided by this manuscript, if it shall ever be found, must enfold the mysteries at which I can only hint. I returned to the boat as my electric batteries grew feeble, resolved to explore the rock temple on the following day. On the 17th, as my impulse to search out the mystery of the temple waxed still more insistent, a great disappointment befell me, for I found that the materials needed to replenish the portable light had perished in the mutiny of those pigs in July. My rage was unbounded, yet my German sense forbade me to venture unprepared into an utterly black interior which might prove the lair of some indescribable marine monster, or a labyrinth of passages from whose windings I could never extricate myself. All I could do was turn on the waning searchlight of the U-29, and with its aid walk up the temple steps and study the exterior carvings. The shaft of light entered the door at an upward angle and I peered in to see if I could glimpse anything, but all in vain. Not even the roof was visible, and though I took a step or two inside after testing the floor with a staff, I dared not go further. Moreover, for the first time in my life I experienced the emotion of dread. I began to realize how some of poor kings' moods had arisen, for, as the temple drew me more and more, I feared its aqueous abysses with a blind and mounting terror. Returning to the submarine, I turned off the lights and sat thinking in the dark. Electricity must now be saved for emergencies. Saturday the 18th, I spent in total darkness, tormented by thoughts and memories that threatened to overcome my German will. Kinzer had gone mad and perished before reaching this sinister remnant of a past, unwholesomely remote, and had advised me to go with him. Was indeed... "'fate preserving my reason only to draw me irresistibly to an end "'more horrible and unthinkable than any man has dreamed of. "'Clearly my nerves were sorely taxed, "'and I must cast off these impressions of weaker men. "'I could not sleep Saturday night "'and turned on the lights regardless of the future. "'It was annoying that the electricity "'should not last out the air and provisions. "'I revived my thoughts of euthanasia "'and examined my automatic pistol.' Toward morning, I must have dropped asleep with the lights on, for I awoke in darkness yesterday afternoon to find the batteries dead. I struck several matches in succession, and desperately regretted the improvidence which had caused us long ago to use up the few candles we carried. After the fading of the last match I dared to waste, I sat very quietly without a light. As I considered the inevitable end, my mind ran over preceding events and developed a hitherto dormant impression which would have caused a weaker and more superstitious man to shudder. The head of the radiant god in the sculptures on the rock temple is the same as that carven bit of ivory which the dead sailor brought on the sea, and which poor Kinza carried back into the sea. I was a little dazed by this coincidence, but did not become terrified, It is only the inferior thinker who hastens to explain the singular and the complex by the primitive shortcut of supernaturalism. The coincidence was strange, but I was too sound a reasoner to connect circumstances which admit of no logical connection, or to associate in any uncanny fashion the disastrous events which had led from the victory affair to my present plight. Feeling the need of more rest, I took a sedative and secured some more sleep. My nervous condition was reflected in my dreams, for I seemed to hear the cries of drowning persons, and to see dead faces pressing against the portholes of the boat, and among the dead faces was the living, mocking face of the youth with the ivory image. I must be careful how I record my awakening today, for I am unstrung, and much hallucination is necessarily mixed with fact. Psychologically, my case is most interesting, and I regret that it cannot be observed scientifically by a competent German authority. Upon opening my eyes, my first sensation was an overmastering desire to visit the rock temple, a desire which grew every instant, yet which I automatically sought to resist through some emotion of fear which operated in the reverse direction. Next there came to me the impression of light amidst the darkness of dead batteries, and I seemed to see a sort of phosphorescent glow in the water through the porthole which opened toward the temple. This aroused my curiosity, for I knew of no deep-sea organism capable of emitting such luminosity. But before I could investigate there came a third impression which, because of its irrationality, caused me to doubt the objectivity of anything my senses might record. It was an aural delusion, a sensation of rhythmic, melodic sound, as of some wild yet beautiful chant or choral hymn, coming from the outside through the absolutely soundproof hull of the U-29. Convinced of my psychological and nervous abnormality, I lighted some matches and poured a stiff dose of sodium bromide solution, which seemed to calm me to the extent of dispelling the illusion of sound but the phosphorescence remained and I had difficulty in repressing a childish impulse to go to the porthole and seek its source it was horribly realistic and I soon could distinguish by its aid the familiar objects around me as well as the empty sodium bromide glass of which I had had no form of visual impression in its present location the last circumstance made me ponder and I crossed the room and touched the glass it was indeed in the place where I had seemed to see it Now I knew that the light was either real or part of an hallucination so fixed and consistent that I could not hope to dispel it. So, abandoning all resistance, I ascended to the conning tower to look for the luminous agency. Might it not actually be another U-boat, offering possibilities of rescue? It is well that the reader accept nothing which follows as objective truth— well, since the events transcend natural law, they are necessarily the subjective and unreal creations of my overtaxed mind. When I attained the conning tower, I found the sea in general far less luminous than I had expected. There was no animal or vegetable phosphorescence about, and the city that sloped down to the river was invisible in blackness. What I did see was not spectacular, not grotesque or terrifying, yet it removed my last vestige of trust in my consciousness for the door and windows of the undersea temple hewn from the rocky hill were vividly aglow with a flickering radiance, as from a mighty altar flame far within. Later incidents are chaotic. As I stared at the uncannily lighted door and windows, I became subject to the most extravagant visions, visions so extravagant that I cannot even relate them. I fancied that I discerned objects in the temple, objects both stationary and moving, and seemed to hear again the unreal chant that had floated to me when first I awaked, and over all rose thoughts and fears which scented in the youth from the sea and the ivory image whose carving was duplicated on the frieze and columns of the temple before me. I thought of poor Kinza, and wondered where his body rested with the image he had carried back into the sea. He had warned me of something, and I had not heeded. But he was a soft-headed Rhinelander, who went mad at troubles so a Prussian could bear with ease. The rest is very simple. My impulse to visit and enter the temple has now become an inexplicable and imperious command, which ultimately cannot be denied. My own German will no longer controls my acts, and volition is henceforward possible only in minor matters. Such madness it was which drove kinzer to his death, bareheaded and unprotected in the ocean, But I am a Prussian and a man of sense, and will use to the last what little will I have. When first I saw that I must go, I prepared my diving suit, helmet, and air-generator for instant donning, and immediately commenced to write this hurried chronicle, in the hope that it may some day reach the world. I shall seal the manuscript in a bottle, and entrust it to the sea as I leave the U-29 forever. I have no fear not even from the prophecies of the madman Kinza. What I have seen cannot be true, and I know that this madness of my own will at most lead only to suffocation when my air is gone. The light in the temple is a sheer delusion, and I shall die calmly like a German in the black and forgotten depths. This demoniac laughter which I hear as I write comes only from my own weakening brain. So I will carefully don my suit and walk boldly up the steps into the primal shrine, that silent secret of unfathomed waters and uncounted years. That was The Temple by H.P. Lovecraft, read by Morgan Scorpion.
1: Hey everyone, thank you again for listening to the show. We're not done. We've got more Lovecraft coming up. But just a reminder to rate, review, and subscribe if you're enjoying the show. If you have any suggestions, you can contact me on Facebook at People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos and Black Clock Audio Tales. So, yeah, if you have any suggestions, anything you want to hear on the show, you want to read something, you want to be a guest on the show... Hey, are you in Portland and want to be a guest on Welcome to Portland? Sit in the basement and uh, drink beer and eat charcuterie and uh, talk about yourself? Hey, I'm down for it. Go to PGTTCM.com and check out Welcome to Portland. All right, back to the show.
0: The Picture in the House by H.P. Lovecraft. Searchers after horror haunt strange... Far places. For them are the catacombs of Ptolemais and the carved mausolea of the nightmare countries. They climb to the moonlit towers of ruined Rhine castles and falter down black cobweb steps beneath the scattered stones of forgotten cities in Asia. The haunted wood and the desolate mountain are their shrines, and they linger around the sister monoliths on uninhabited islands. But the true epicure and the terrible, to whom a new thrill of unutterable ghastliness is the chief end and justification of existence, esteems most of all the ancient lonely farmhouses of backwoods New England. For there the dark elements of strength, solitude, grotesqueness, and ignorance combine to for- form the perfection of the hideous. Most horrible of all sights are the little unpainted wooden houses, remote from traveled ways, usually squatted upon some damp, grassy slope, or lean against some gigantic outcropping of rock. Two hundred years and more they have leaned or squatted there, while the vines have crawled and the trees have swelled and spread. They are almost hidden now in lawless luxuriances of green and guardian shrouds of shadow. But the small paned windows still stare shockingly, as if breaking through a lethal stupor which wards off madness by dulling the memory of unutterable things. In such houses have dwelt generations of strange people whose life the world has never seen. Seized with a gloomy and fanatical belief which exiled them from their kind, their ancestors sought the wilderness for freedom. There the scions of a conquering race, indeed first free from the restrictions of their fellows, but cowered in that appalling slavery to the dismal phantasms of their own minds. Divorced from the enlightenment of civilization, the strength of these Puritans turned into singular channels, and in their isolation, morbid self-repression, and a struggle for life with relentless nature, there came to them dark, furtive traits from the prehistoric depths of their cold northern heritage. By necessity practical, and by philosophy stern, these folk were not... Beautiful in their sins, erring as they all, as all mortals must, they were forced by their rigid code to seek concealment above all else, so that they came to use less and less taste in what they concealed. Only the silent, sleepy, staring houses in the backwoods can tell all that has lain hidden since the early days, and they are not communicative, being loath to shake off the drowsiness which helps them forget. Sometimes one feels that it would be merciful to tear down these houses, for they must often dream. It was to a time-battered edifice of this description that I was driven one afternoon in November 1896 by a rain of such chilling copiousnessness that any shelter was preferable to exposure. I had been traveling for some time amongst the people of the Miskatonic Valley in quest of certain genealogical data, and from the remote, devious, and problematical nature of my course, had deemed it convenient to employ a bicycle, despite the lateness of the season. Now I found myself upon an apparently abandoned road, which I had chosen as the shortest cut to Arkham, overtaken by the storm at a point far from any town, and confronted with no refuge save the antique and repellent wooden building which blinked with weird windows from between two huge leafless elms near the foot of a rocky hill. Distant though it was from the remnant of a road, the house nonetheless impressed me unfavorably the very moment I spied it. Honest, wholesome structures do not stare at travelers so slyly and hauntingly, and in my genealogical researches I had encountered legends of a century before which biased me against places of this kind. Yet the force of the elements was such as to overcome my scruples and I did not hesitate to wheel my machine up the weedy rise to the closed door, which seemed at once so suggestive and secretive. I had somehow taken it for granted that the house was abandoned. Yet as I approached it, I was not so sure, for though the walks were indeed overgrown with weeds, they seemed to retain their nature a little too well to argue a complete desertion. Therefore, instead of trying the door, I knocked, feeling as I did so a trepidation I could scarcely explain. As I waited on the rough, mossy rock which served as a doorstep, I glanced at the neighboring windows and the panes of the transom above me and noticed that although old, rattling, and almost opaque with dirt, they were not broken. The building, then, must still be inhabited, despite its isolation and general neglect. However, my rapping evoked no response. So after repeating the summons, I tried the rusty latch and found the door unfastened. Inside was a little vestibule with walls from which the plaster was falling, and through the doorway came a faint but peculiarly hateful odor. I entered, carrying my bicycle, and closed the door behind me. Ahead rose a narrow staircase flanked by a small door, probably leading to the cellar, while to the left and right were closed doors leading to rooms on the ground floor. Leaning my cycle against the wall, I opened the door at the left, and crossed into a small, low-sealed chamber that dimly lighted by its two dusty windows, and furnished in the barest and most primitive possible way. It appeared to be a kind of sitting-room, where it had a table and several chairs, and an immense fireplace, above which ticked an antique clock on a mantel. Books and papers were very few, and in the prevailing gloom, I could not readily discern the titles. What interested me was the uniform air of archaism as displayed in every visible detail. Most of the houses in this region I had found rich in relics the past. but here the antiquity was curiously complete, for in all the room I could not discover a single article of definitely post-revolutionary date. Had the furnishings been less
2: humble, the place would have been a collector's paradise. As I surveyed this quaint apartment, I felt an increase in
0: that aversion, first excited by the bleak exterior of the house. Just what it was that I feared or loathed, I could by no means define, but something in the whole atmosphere seemed redolent of unhallowed age, of unpleasant crudeness, and of secrets which should be forgotten. I felt disinclined to sit down and wandered about examining the various articles which I had noticed. The first object of my curiosity was a book of medium size lying upon the table and presenting such an antediluvian aspect that I marveled at beholding it outside a museum or library. It was bound in leather with metal fittings and was in an excellent state of preservation, being altogether an unusual sort of volume to encounter in an abode so lowly. When I opened it to the title page, my wonder grew even greater, for it proved to be nothing less rare than Pigafetta's account of the Congo region, written in Latin from the notes of the sailor Lopez, and printed at Frankfurt in 1598. I had often heard of this work with its curious illustrations by the brothers de Bray, hence for a moment forgot my uneasiness and my desire to turn the pages before me. The engravings were indeed interesting, drawn wholly from imagination and careless descriptions and represented negroes with white skins and Caucasian features. Nor would I soon have closed the book, had not an exceedingly trivial circumstance upset my tired nerves and revived my sensation of disquiet. What annoyed me was merely the persistent way in which the volume tended to fall open of itself at plate twelve, which represented in gruesome detail a butcher's shop of the cannibal Anzik's. I had experienced some shame at my susceptibility to such a thing, but the drawing nevertheless disturbed me, especially in connection with some adjacent passages descriptive of Anzic gastronomy. I had turned to a neighboring shelf and was examining its meager literary contents, an eighteenth-century Bible, a pilgrim's progress of like period, illustrated with grotesque woodcuts, and printed by the almanac maker Isaiah Thomas the rotting bulk of Cotton Mather's Magnalia Christi Americana, and a few other books of evidently equal age, when my attention was aroused by the unmistakable sound of walking in the room overhead. At first astonished and startled, considering the lack of response to my recent knocking at the door, I immediately afterward concluded that the walker had just awakened from a sound sleep, and listened with less surprise as the footsteps sounded on the creaking stairs. The tread was heavy, yet seemed to contain a curious quality of cautiousness, a quality which I disliked the more because the tread was heavy. When I had entered the room, I had shut the door behind me. Now, after a moment of silence, during which the walker may have been inspecting my bicycle in the hall, I heard a fumbling at the latch, and saw the paneled portal swing open again. In the doorway, to the person of such singular appearance that I should have exclaimed aloud for the restraints of good breeding. Old, white-bearded, and ragged, my host possessed a countenance and physique which inspired equal wonder and respect. His height could not have been less than six feet, and despite a general air of age and poverty, he was stout and powerful in proportion. His face, almost hidden by a long beard which grew high upon the cheek's Seemed abnormally ruddy and less wrinkled than one might expect, while over a high forehead fell a chocolate white hair, little thinned by the years. His blue eyes, though a trifle bloodshot, seemed inexplicably keen and burning. But for his horrible unkemptness, the man would have been as distinguished looking as he was impressive. This unkemptness, however, made him offensive despite his face and figure. Of what his clothing consisted, I could hardly tell for it seemed to be no more than a mass of tatters surmounting a pair of high, heavy boots, and the lack of cleanliness surpassed description. The appearance of this man and the instinctive fear he inspired prepared me for something like enmity, so that I almost shuddered through surprise and a sense of uncanny incongruity when he motioned me to a chair and addressed me in a thin, weak voice full of fawning respect and ingratiating hospitality. His speech was very curious, an extreme form of Yankee dialect I had thought long well extinct, and I studied it closely as he sat down opposite me for conversation. "Catched in the rain, be ye?" he greeted. "Glad ye was not a house and had the sense to come right in." I calculate I was asleep outside a here ye. I ain't as young as I used to be, and I need a powerful sign of maps nowadays. Travelin' fur? I ain't seen many folks along this road since they took off the Arkham stage. I replied that I was going to Arkham, and apologized for my rude entry into his domicile. Whereupon he continued, Glad to see ye, you, young sir. New faces scarce around here, and I ain't got much to cheer me up these days. Yes, you hail from Boston, don't you? I never been there, but I can tell a town man when I see him. We had one for district schoolmaster in 84, but he quit sudden, and no one never eared on him since. <laughs> Here the old man lapsed into a kind of chuckle and made no explanation when I questioned him. He seemed to be in an aboundingly good humor, yet to possess those eccentricities which, one might guess, in his grooming. For some time he rambled on with an almost feverish geniality when it struck me to ask him how he came by so rare a book as Pigafetta's Regnum Congo. The effect of this volume had not left me, and I felt a certain hesitancy in speaking of it. But curiosity overmastered all the vague fears which had steadily accumulated since my first glimpse of the house. To my relief, the question did not seem an awkward one, for the old man answered freely and volubly, Oh, that Afriki book! Captain Ebenezer Hope treaded me that in 68, him as was killed in the war. Something about the name of Ebenezer Holt caused me to look up sharply. I had encountered it in my genealogical work, but not in any record since the Revolution. I wondered if my host could help me in the task at which I was laboring, and resolved to ask him about it later on. He continued Ebenezer was on a sale merchant merchantman for years, and picked up a spy of queer stuff at every port. He got this in London, I guess. He used to like to buy things at the shops. I was up to his house, once on the hill, training hosses, when I see this book. I relished the pictures, so he gave it to me on a swamp. It's a queer book. Here, leave me get on my spectacles. The old man fumbled among his rags, producing a pair of dirty and amazingly antique glasses, with small octagonal lenses and steel bows. Donning these, as he reached for the volume on the table and turned the pages lovingly. Ebenezer could read a little of this, tis Latin, but I can't. I had two or three schoolmasters read me a bit, and passing Clark, him they say got drowned in the pond. Can you make anything out in it? I told him that I could, and translated for his benefit a paragraph near the beginning. If I erred, he was not scholar enough to correct me, but he seemed childishly pleased at my English version. His proximity was becoming rather obnoxious, yet I saw no way to escape without offending him. I was amused at the childish fondness of this ignorant old man, for the pictures in a book he could not read, and wondered how much better he could read the few books in English which adorned the room. This revelation of simplicity removed much of the ill-defined apprehension I had felt, and I smiled as my host rambled on. Queer how pictures can set a body thinking. Take this on here near the front. Have you ever seen trees like that with big leaves a floppin' over and down? And them men, them can't be niggers. They do beat all, kind of like injuns, I guess. Even if they be an Africa. some of these here critters look like monkeys or half monkeys and half men. But I never heerd of nothing like this one. Here he pointed to a fabulous creature of the artist, which one might describe as a sort of dragon with the head of an alligator. Right now I'll show ye the best one. Over here and I'm the middle. The old man's speech grew a trifle thicker, and his eyes assumed a brighter glow, but his fumbling hands, though seemingly clumsier than before, were entirely adequate to their mission. The book
2: fell open, almost of its own accord, and as if from frequent consultation at this place
0: to the repellent twelfth plate, showing a butcher's shop among the angst cannibals. My
2: sense of restlessness returned, though I did not exhibit it. The especially bizarre thing was that the artist had made his Africans
0: look like white men. The rims and quarters hanging about the walls of the shop were ghastly, while the butcher with his axe was hideously incongruous. But my host seemed to relish the view as much as I disliked it. What do you think of this? Ain't never see the light hereabouts, eh? When I see this, I tell Ed Holt, that's something to stir ye up and make your blood tickle. When I read in scripture about slaying like them Midianites was slew, I kind of think things. But I ain't got no
2: picture of it. Here a body can see all there is to it. I suppose tis sinful. But ain't we all born living in sin? That fellow being chopped up
0: gives me a tickle every time I look at him. I have to keep looking at him, see where the butcher cut off his feet, tears his head on that bench with one arm on side of it and the other arms on the ground side of the meat block. As the man mumbled on in his shocking ecstasy, the expression on his heavy, spectacled face became indescribable, but his voice sank rather than mounted. My own sensations can scarcely be recorded. All the terror I had dimly felt before rushed upon me actively and vividly, and I knew that I loathed the ancient and abhorrent creature so near me with an infinite intensity. His madness, or at least his partial perversion, seemed almost beyond dispute. He was almost whispering now, with a huskiness more terrible than a scream, and I trembled as I listened. As I says, tis queer how pictures sets ye thinking. Do you know, young sir, I'm right solemn as on here. Arter I got the book off Eb, I used to look at it a lot, especially when I heerd Posse clark rant a Sundays in his big wig. "'Once I tried something funny, dear youngster, don't get scared. "'All I did was to look at the picture afore I killed the sheep for market. "'Killing sheep was kind of more fun out of looking at it.' "'The tone of the old man now sank very low, "'sometimes becoming so faint that his words were hardly audible. "'I listened to the rain and to the rattling of the bleared, small-paned windows "'and marked a rumbling of approaching thunder quite unusual for the season.' Once a terrific flash and peal shook the frail house to its foundations. But the whisperer seemed not to notice it. Killing sheep was kind of more fun. But do you know, twa not quite satisfying. Queer how a preven gets hold on ye, as ye love the mighty young man. Don't tell nobody. But I swear to God, that picture begun to make me hungry for victuals I couldn't raise nor buy. Here, sit still, what's ailing yet? I didn't do nothing, only I wondered how t'would be if I did. They say meat makes blood and flesh, and gives you a new life. So I wondered if t'wouldn't make a man live longer, and longer if t'was more the same. The whisper never continued. The interruption was not produced by my fright, nor by the rapidly increasing storm its too fury. I was presently to open my eyes on a smoky solitude of blackened ruins. It was produced by a very simple, though somewhat unusual, happening. The open book lay flat between us, with the picture staring repulsively upward. As the old man whispered the words, more the same, a tiny, spattering impact was heard, and something showed on the yellow paper of the upturned volume. I thought of the rain and of a leaky roof, but rain is not red, On the butcher's shop of the N.C. Cannibals, a small, red spattering glistened picturesquely, lending vividness to the horror of the engraving. The old man saw it, and stopped whispering even before my expression of horror made it necessary. Saw it, and glanced quickly toward the floor of the room he had left an hour before. I followed his glance, and beheld just above us on the loose plaster of the ancient ceiling, A large, irregular spot of wet crimson, which seemed to spread even as I viewed it. I did not shriek or move, but merely shut my eyes. A moment later came the titanic thunderbolt of thunderbolts, blasting that accursed house of unhonorable secrets, and bringing the oblivion which alone saved my mind. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much
1: for listening to the whole episode. And I hope you all are having a great day, a great commute, a great whatever you're doing. I hope you make your flights on time. I hope you get to your next destination. I hope you have an awesome day at work. I hope your yard work all gets done. Thank you so much for listening. Share the show with your friends. Let everyone know about it. If you like the show, give us five stars wherever you listen to and rate podcasts. Tell your friends about it. And have yourselves a wonderful day.